In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Our proverb begins this morning, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Now, last, this week we're going a bit backwards in Proverbs. Last week we kind of started in the middle with verses that talked about the rich and the poor. This week we go all the way back to chapter 1. Now, after the introduction of the, ver- the book, starting in verse 8, we find a father giving advice to his son. And here he begins to compare wisdom to a woman, a mother figure. And she goes out crying to the, for the simple to stop being simple. Now, simple here means naive. So wisdom wants to know how long will people keep being naive? How long will people scoff and be fools? Wisdom would love to help them if only they'll listen. Think for a moment about someone you've mentored. Maybe a student or a a younger colleague or maybe your child, a niece or a nephew. Have you seen them start to go down a wrong path? About to make a bad decision? Maybe hanging out with people you know are not going to lead to a good consequence. And when you gave them your experience, your knowledge, your wisdom, what was their response? Did they tell you that life is different now? Or worse, did they tell you you have no idea what you're talking about? Or did they listen and follow that advice? That's what wisdom is going through this morning. This is what the father is trying to explain to his son and wisdom to everyone Give heed to my reproof. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Wisdom wants them to listen now, before they fall into trouble. And then wisdom lets it be known how she will feel if they don't listen. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes. When they call upon me, I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Waiting to listen to good advice until you're in trouble never helps the situation. How many times have you been somewhere and think back to something your parents said and give yourself a little kick, although maybe you never admit it to mom and dad? I I read something this week that I want to share. It said, Wisdom's laugh here is nothing but an I told you so that's after the fact and well-deserved. In the world of wisdom is in our own, The foolishness of fools and their demise are not without irony and humor. Wisdom here is not hoping that they fail so she can mock them. It's their failure to listen to wisdom that bring about the problems they're facing in the first place. That is, the improper behavior in question is not wisdom's laughter, but the audience's foolishness. For waywardness kills the simple, and the complacency of fools destroy them. But those who listen to me will be secure and live at ease, without dread of disaster. When we start down a wrong path, it may be because we're young and we're too trusting. Or maybe because we're apathetic. After all, we've done this thing before and it hasn't led to destruction. It's not going to hurt us this time either. Wisdom's final remarks promises destruction for fools but a life of ease for those who listen to her. Now, we know life isn't simple. If you don't believe me, just turn over a few pages in your Bible and read the book of Job, read the book of Ecclesiastes. Wisdom is a preacher. She's making a strong appeal here. 
We know the wise life isn't always easy. We also know that sometimes it's not free from disaster. But wisdom is dealing in probabilities. It's much more likely that foolishness leads to disaster than wisdom ever will. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. If wisdom is concerned about probability, about reaping and sowing, it was God who started everything on his course and began the cycle of life. The law of the Lord is perfect and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and give wisdom to the innocent. But not only did God start the cycles of nature, he also set up his law to guide us and to govern us. And knowing that, David, who's the author of this psalm, cries out that God's statutes are the best way to live. But even knowing the wisdom he should follow, he cries out for God to show him his unknowing faults, those, those sins he's committing that he doesn't even know he's doing. But more importantly, to keep him from presumptuous sins, from those sins he wants to intentionally commit. David knows he's a broken man in a broken world, and that without God's help, he will not follow wisdom's advice. But his ending, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer, is still wisdom today. We look at Jesus this morning, after freeing the Syrophoenician woman's daughter and healing the man born deaf last week, Jesus finds himself in the next few verses that we didn't read, feeding a crowd of 4,000 who follow him and are hungry, because he has compassion. And then he is approached by some leaders, and they start an argument, because they want him to perform a sign, something that will tell them once and for all that he's really the Messiah. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees in the eyes and says, I fed 5,000 from from a boy's lunch. I just fed 4,000 from someone else's lunch. What other sign do you want? And as soon as they give up arguing, he leaves and he heals a blind man. A little bit of irony there. Then Jesus grabs the disciples and they go north towards Caesarea Philippi. That's Gentile country. Caesarea Philippi is, right, Caesar Philip. And as they're walking, Jesus asks the disciples, Who do men say that I am? And Peter, because it's always Peter that answers in these situations, looks at him and says, You're the Messiah. That's after the other disciples say, Well, some people think you're John the Baptist, and maybe Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. There's, there's a guessing game there for a while. But Jesus tells them not to spread that information. And he starts here, halfway through the book of Mark, to prepare them for what's to come. He explains he's come to suffer and die. And Peter's response is to pull Jesus aside and start rebuking him. Jesus, you don't need to suffer and die. You're the Messiah. Call down the angels. I'll grab my sword. Let's go. I'm sure that's what Peter was trying to tell him. But Jesus, instead of quietly, he loudly rebukes Peter and says, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then he lets all of the disciples know, If anyone wants to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. What must the imagery of being punished like a criminal have sounded like to those assembled? This is well before Jesus is crucified on the cross. 
The cross was something that was saved for the worst of sinners and the vilest of Roman uh, opponents. They have to give their life for the gospel. And then Jesus gives them new wisdom to live by. For what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? For those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with the angels. And for those not ashamed of Jesus, James gives some more wisdom this morning. The first piece is simple. Don't strive to be teachers. There's a greater judgment from God of what teachers do. But then he moves on to the tongue which is something I think is applicable to all of us. For all of us make many mistakes, but anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect. James understands the reality that many have already learned, like the father in Proverbs, David in Psalms, or like Peter after he says the right thing and then the wrong thing. We're not perfect. But those in authority have a greater risk of harming others stemming from what they say. So we have to learn to control how we speak and what we say and our responses. And James gives a series of analogies. We need to bridle our tongues like a horse. We need to treat the tongue like it's a rudder and then it controls a whole ship. The tongue is small, but it's mighty. Think about the amount of problems it can create. James writes, How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The imagery here of the fire just setting ablaze and going off really hits home for me. Living in New Mexico, I can remember a night where I was driving home with the kids after church, and we turned down, we lived on a hill overlooking the Rio Grande Valley, and as we turned to go down the hill a little ways to our house, we looked up at the mountain and all we could see is orange. It was a forest fire. And when you turn that corner and all you can see is orange on the mountain, It's an eerie, eerie sight. And after we parked, we kind of stood out in the yard for a while watching. And as those dry, hot winds were blowing, we watched the fire grow wider and bigger and come closer. Scary time. That's what we do when we let our words go and be destructive. James says that the tongue sets on fire the cycle of nature. We interrupt the normal rhythms of life, the normal rhythms of grace and forgiveness by how and what we say to others. James says we can tame animals, but we have a greater problem trying to tame our tongue. Let me just quote James here. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessings and cursings. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening? Fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or grapefruit from or grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh water. If you're hiking in the woods and you come on a stream, and it's and it's it, imagine it was trying to do both, give you fresh water and brackish water at the same time. Would you drink the water? No, because it's going to be dirty, it's going to be unclean. This morning we read how Peter first used his tongue to articulate a great truth. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Then he turned around just a few moments later 
and used his tongue to try and derail God's plan. In Proverbs, we read that fools use their tongues to talk themselves, to talk others out of walking in wisdom. In our modern age, with radio, television, and the internet, this fire can spread faster and farther than ever. And it's more permanent. As some of our young people learn, what you say as a high school student can come back to haunt you later on in life, just because you posted it on Facebook. So we have to use more discretion and more wisdom in what we say or what we post or what we share with others. Wisdom would say to pause before you post something. You can use Paul's list from Philippians as a filter. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And if you're still struggling with should I post it or not, ask yourself if it shows the same grace and the same love that our Savior shows to us. Are you loving your neighbor as yourself by saying it or posting it? Like the Father in Proverbs, I implore us all to listen to wisdom. I will pour out my thoughts to you. I will make my words known to you. Let Christ's love continue to lead us in everything we do and everything we say. And in the end, let us join David in praying that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Amen.